Well, we're going to be looking at an interesting subject this morning. We're going to be delving into the idea of women in ministry and what the Bible has to say about that because, as we've just read, there were women who ministered to Jesus during his earthly life. So that's what we want to do. I want to take some time and just ask God's blessing before we even begin. Oh Lord, would you grant your blessing upon this section, Lord? Lord, you know that I I wrestled with this this week, not knowing if I should just lightly skim over it and get to the next parable or whether I should take time to really delve into these three verses. And I think, Lord, you've you've, uh, directed me to take time and just talk about women in ministry. So would you give it Unction, Lord, and and instruction to those who may have never thought deeply about this before, that we would be instructed, and that the women here, Lord, would see their dignity in your sight and would serve you with all their might. And Lord, that goes for the men too. We pray that we would see a, a great example from these women who ministered unto Jesus so long ago. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most hotly debated subjects in the body of Christ over the last 20 years has been the idea of women in ministry. I've got several books on my bookshelves where people come from one perspective or another perspective. And you have the egalitarians lining up on one side and the complementarians lining up on the other side, and they all shoot their arrows at each other. Now, the egalitarians, let me just explain that for you. They are those who believe in absolute equality for women in ministry. What I mean by that is they say that there is there should be no limitation put upon a woman whether she should do anything in the body of Christ, including being a pastor, serving in leadership and authority, and preaching and teaching God's Word. So absolute equality. Complementarians believe that there is equality between men and women in terms of their personhood, and in terms of the salvation benefits that are given to both men and women, but they believe there should be a limitation, and that men are those that God has called to be pastors, leaders, preachers, and teachers in the body of Christ, and that that's a role that women should not step into. So do you see the two sides? It basically comes down to, should women exercise authority within the church through pastoring and preaching or not? And so it's a very hotly debated topic. Books fly back and forth. Um, I've read those books. And this morning, I don't have any grandiose ideas that I'm going to solve this debate once and for all within the body of Christ, because I'm not. But we will talk about it. And I will share my own biblical convictions as we come to the end of the message. We're going to be looking at some women in the first century that were ministers unto Jesus. They served him. They served the disciples. And I think there's some really powerful lessons that the Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind from their lives. But before we do that, I want to look at some background. We find the background to this whole section in verse 1. Let's set the stage now. Verse 1 says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. We'll stop there. Soon afterwards. Soon after what? Soon after the events of chapter 7 in Luke. The last event was where the immoral woman, the notorious sinner, probably a prostitute, had come to Jesus because she was overwhelmed 
with the fact that he had forgiven her. And so she came out of love, bringing her most precious possession, this alabaster violet perfume. And she knelt down in the presence of all of these religious folks who would have looked down on her and scorned her. And she broke the vial and began pouring it on his feet. And as she did that, the tears just flowed. And she kissed his feet and she wiped those tears with the hair of her head. And Jesus used this to teach that Pharisee, a very important lesson. He said, those who have been forgiven much are going to be the ones who love much. So it was soon afterwards, this event in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it says that he began going around from one city and village to another. Jesus was exercising an itinerant ministry. He was traveling. Now he's still up in Galilee. He's up in uh, the Sea of Galilee area. Later, he's going to come down from there to Judea, to the area around Jerusalem. But at this point, he's still way up in Galilee, ministering to the villages and the cities there. And what's he doing? It says he's proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Now, those two words deserve some attention. The words proclaiming and preaching. The word proclaiming basically means to speak forth as a herald. Now try to imagine what life would have been like before the internet and before TV and radio and newspapers. If there's important <laughs> if there's important news going on that needs to get out, how is anybody going to know? Well, the town crier is the one that disseminates the news. He goes to the town square, he stands up on some elevated area, and he begins to say, Hear ye! Hear ye! And he starts attracting a crowd. And people know whenever the town crier says, Hear ye, hear ye, it's time to gather around because something important is coming down the pike. So he would begin to speak in the name of the king. And he would tell this, in a very loud voice, he would proclaim the news on behalf of the king. Well, that's what this word means. Jesus was God's herald. Jesus was setting himself up in the town square, so to speak, proclaiming this news. There is news from heaven for you. And the second word, preaching, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get the import of that word just by the English word preaching, but in the Greek, it means to evangelize. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was evangelizing. He was proclaiming glad tidings. Have you ever thought about Jesus being an evangelist? Well, he was. He was going from one city and village to another, evangelizing, proclaiming the glad tidings. And what was the message of glad tidings? It says here it was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, how is the kingdom of God good news or glad tidings for somebody? Well, I need to take you to Matthew chapter 19 to show you why this message of the kingdom of God was good news. In Matthew 19, verse 23, we're going to break into this whole story about the rich young ruler. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished, and they said, Then who can be saved? Now, there's two really important things that we need to take out of that section right there. Number one, verse 23, Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 24, Jesus refers to the kingdom of God. Now, there are many scholars who spill gallons of ink 
trying to prove that there's something different between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But this verse plainly shows that they're identical. They're exactly the same thing, just synonyms. You could call the same thing the kingdom of God, or you could call it the kingdom of heaven. And then, even more important than that is verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Now, in verse 24, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples said, Well, then who can be saved? Which tells us that to be saved is to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, there's nothing really... Um, too difficult or confusing about what the kingdom of God is. It's God's saving rule in which all who have come into His favor, His grace, have the, the same ones have come into His kingdom. They have surrendered to the rule of Jesus Christ as the King and they have been saved. Saved from the wrath to come. Remember when Jesus began His ministry, He would go around saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The King is here. I've come from heaven. Repent, because that's the way into this kingdom where I am the king and you are my subject and you experience the blessings of salvation within the kingdom. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's traveling from one city and one village to another around Galilee. He has one message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. I've got good news. You can get in. You're outside now. You're lost. But if you surrender to my lordship and put your trust in me, you can experience the blessings of the kingdom, which are everlasting blessings. Now, one thing I see immediately from this text, even just in our introduction, is the tireless diligence of Jesus Christ. Look at what he was doing. Jesus came down from heaven. He's God. He has every right just to kick back and lay low and just have a life of luxury and ease if he wants to. But what does he do? He goes from one city and one village to the next, preaching, proclaiming, there's good news for you. In one place, Jesus said that his food was to do the Father's will. And in another place, he said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. You you see the sense of urgency in Jesus' life. He knew his time was going to be brief. And he knew he had to pack as much into those three and a half years of ministry as he possibly could. So he was a busy, tireless worker for the kingdom of God. And there's a great lesson for us in that. Because we are called to emulate our Savior. And if he tirelessly went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom, shouldn't we look at that as the example we have to follow and seek to do the same? You know, J.C. Ryle, I was reading his commentary on Luke this last week, and he said, we have no idea what can be accomplished in a 24-hour period of time if we just set our mind to it. So, we find the diligence of Jesus Christ. Now, as Jesus is traveling around preaching the good news of the kingdom, who's traveling with him? We'll take a look at verse 1. It says the 12 were with him. Now we know who those are, the 12 apostles, right? Back in Luke chapter 6, I gave a whole message on who these 12 men were. So we're not going to take time talking about the 12 any longer. We're going to talk about who else was with Jesus as he traveled around. It says in verse 2, and also some women. 
who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So this morning, we're going to focus on the women who served Jesus. We're given the names of three of them. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And then in verse two or verse three, it says, and many others. Now, I looked it up in the Greek this week. The phrase many others is in the feminine gender. It's not the masculine. So these are not many other men. These are many other women. Did, did you ever think about the fact that we not only have these crowds of male disciples following Jesus around, you had a whole bunch of female followers of Jesus who were following him around from city and village to city and village, hearing his words and seeking to serve him. So we want to think about these female disciples, these women who serve Jesus this morning. Now, we have the names of three of them. Mary Magdalene. We know the most about Mary Magdalene than of these other two. We know, most, we, we know more about Mary Magdalene than we do about Joanna. But we know more about Joanna than we do about Susanna. Because this is the only place in the whole Bible that Susanna's name even appears. So we don't, don't know very much about her. But what do we know about Susanna? Well, we know she was a follower of Jesus. She was a disciple of the Lord. We know that she followed him around from city and village to city and village. We know from other references that we'll look at later that she actually followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And she was there when he died, and she was there when he was buried, and she was there when he rose from the dead. We also know that she contributed to Jesus's and his disciples' support out of her private means. She was a giver. She was generous. And we also know that God himself recognized her service, no matter how obscure or menial it might appear to us, by having it recorded in Scripture, which gives us a great lesson that our service to Jesus, you might think, well, my service to Jesus is so obscure, nobody knows about it. I can't really do much for him. I don't have great gifts. But you know what? The Lord takes note of that. And the Lord's writing it all down in a book of remembrance and it's all going to be revealed one day. No matter how obscure it's been, take heart, saints of God. Now, this morning, we're going to look at these women under two different headings. First of all, their desperation and then their devotion. We need to look at the past life that they had come from before we take a look at the new life that they came into. So first of all, the desperation of these women. These women were either afflicted with demons or diseases. First of all, demons. We're told about Mary Magdalene. It says, from whom seven demons had been driven out by Jesus. Mary Magdalene. You might get the wrong impression if you think that Magdalene was her last name. No, Magdalene was sort of a nickname. There's so many Marys in the Bible, it's hard to keep them all straight. you got Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of James and Joses, and Mary, the sister of Martha, and Mary, who lived in Rome. You've got all kinds of Marys. So in order to keep one distinguished from another, they gave her the nickname of Magdalene. Now, why would they do that? Anybody know? 
There's a place called Magdala. It's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and evidently she was from that city. So we'll just give her the name Mary Magdalene because she's from Magdala. So think about what her life must have been like before Jesus delivered her from demons. She had seven of them. And these seven demons possessed her. They controlled her. Think of other examples in the New Testament where people were demon-possessed. Do you remember the demoniac from Gadarene? He had a legion of demons, a whole host of demons inside of him. Do you remember how the Bible describes his life? He was in torment. He, he lived in this place where he was always amongst the tombs, amongst dead people. He lived by the graves, the tombs. And he would gnash himself with stones, trying to hurt himself. They would try to bind him up with chains, and he'd always keep breaking the chains. He had superhuman strength. He was constantly screaming. And they said, the man's absolutely insane. In fact, he would run around naked. Now, what would you think of a guy who ran around naked, lived among tombs, screaming all the time and breaking chains? He said, the guy's nuts, right? He's absolutely crazy. Well, there's another guy in the Bible. He's the son of a, a concerned father. And this father comes to Jesus when Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, take mercy upon my son because he's a lunatic because he throws himself into the fire and into the water. And Jesus cast the demons out and healed that boy. But notice two things about that boy. He was a lunatic, according to his father's estimation, and he was also trying to hurt himself. He would throw himself into fire, throw himself into water. Now think about Mary Magdalene. If she's possessed by seven demons, what kind of a life did she live before Jesus delivered her? Could she have been someone just like that demoniac from Gadarene? Did she run around naked, living in tombs? Did she constantly scream? Was she trying to hurt herself, throwing herself into fire or gnashing herself with stones? Was she considered by everyone in her village to be absolutely stark raving mad? And there's nothing anybody could do for her. I, I assume that's probably the kind of life she lived. And Jesus came to her and cast the spirits out of her. And Mary Magdalene was never the same afterwards. She became one of the most devoted followers of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. She loved Jesus. In fact, she was the very first one that Jesus appeared to, according to our New Testament. Now, what an honor is that? So, here is this, this woman, delivered from a, a tormented lifestyle, perhaps trying to kill herself because she doesn't want to go on living in this kind of life any longer. But then there's other women that Jesus uh, delivered from diseases. Not just demons, but diseases. We're not told whether Joanna and Susanna were delivered from demons or diseases or perhaps both. But what do we know about Jesus delivering women from diseases in the New Testament? Can you think of any women? The woman with the issue of blood, do you remember her? She had had this issue of blood for 12 years, a, a constant hemorrhage that must have been a, a, an unending source of frustration and irritation and perhaps pain. We don't, I don't know. But she had gone to every doctor she could find. She had spent everything she had on doctors, and the Bible says she was no better. She had actually gotten worse over the years. So she was just in a hopeless situation. And Jesus came to her, and in a word, he delivered her. She just touched the hem of his garment, and she was instantly healed of her disease. 
There was another woman that we're going to find later on in Luke chapter 13. And she was bent double. Have you ever seen somebody like that? They can't straighten up. Well, for 18 years, this woman was bent over like this. And she, she couldn't straighten. She had to live her whole life down like this. And Jesus cast a spirit out of her and healed her instantly. What kind of a life would it be to be always bleeding and never, never be able to stop or be bent over, never able to straighten up? Well, Jesus went to women like this and he instantly and completely cured them. And when they were cured and healed by Jesus Christ, they became his followers. They were so transfixed with love for Jesus that they wanted to do whatever they could to serve him. And so all they could do, they figured, is begin following him and tend to his needs. So that was the desperate condition that these women came from. Their condition was hopeless, right? The woman bent double, could do nothing. The doctors could do nothing to help her. The woman with the issue of blood could do nothing. And the doctors had no help for her. In fact, she had just gotten worse after she spent her life savings trying to get healed. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, could do nothing to get rid of them. So they were helpless and they were hopeless. And actually, their condition is a great picture, a very accurate, striking picture of every lost person. Every lost person is in a hopeless and helpless condition. They cannot save themselves, and so their condition is absolutely, humanly speaking, hopeless. But now I want you to look at the devotion of these women, because that's really the beautiful thing that I see from these women's lives. They had been transformed by the power and love and grace of Christ, and they used their lives now out of gratitude and love just to serve Jesus. They showed their devotion to Jesus in three ways. First of all, by giving to him. Look at the text in verse 3. It says, they were contributing to their support out of their private means. They were contributing to not his. The Textus Receptus, the King James, I believe, has the word his. But the newer, probably better manuscripts have the word their. So these women were contributing to Jesus and his disciples, his apostles' support, out of their private means. The word contributing is the Greek word for serving. So literally it says, they were serving them out of their private means. Which means that they were doing whatever they could to meet their physical, practical needs. Now, what kind of needs would Jesus and his disciples have? Can you think of any? They need food, right? (laughs) Jesus is not a wealthy man. I mean, he doesn't have this big treasure he's carrying around. So they're going to need food every day. I imagine these women would probably go down to the market, buy the food, bring it back, prepare it, cook it, serve it, and maybe even clean up afterwards. And I don't think they were doing it with a grudging spirit. Do you? I think they were just blown away at how good Christ had been to them. This was their privilege to be able to serve him in whatever little way they could. Maybe if their clothes got dirty on those dusty roads, they would take on the task of washing clothes. Maybe if the clothes wore out and got holes in them, they would take their own money down to the market and buy a new tunic or a new cloak for Jesus or one of his disciples. Perhaps from time to time, Jesus and his men just needed a place to rest. And so they would actually fund a night in an inn someplace where they could get washed up and get cleaned up and get refreshed. I'm just 
speculating at this point. But whatever their needs were, these women did whatever they could to tend to them, and they were contributing, they were giving generously out of their own private means to take care of Jesus and his men. Now, nothing has told us about Mary Magdalene or Susanna's financial status, but we do know a little bit about Joanna. A little, a little tidbit is thrown in here about Joanna. We're told that she was the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Now, Herod's the king. Herod's a wicked king. Herod is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. He's a man who's living with his brother's wife. He's a wicked man, but he's a very wealthy man. He's a king. He lives in splendor. He lives in a palace. And here he's got a steward. The steward's like second in command, his right-hand guy who takes care of and manages all of his estate. So I imagine chooses very well off. The king provides for him handsomely because he takes care of everything for the king. So the wife, Joanna, because she's married to Chusa, she's also a wealthy woman. No doubt she had lived in luxury and ease and splendor in the palace for many years until she was touched by Jesus Christ. And then she gives all that up because she wants to follow her Lord. And now she's living a whole different kind of life. But she's taking her finances with her. <laughs> and she's opening up that purse and she's giving as the needs present themselves to Jesus and his disciples. There's no better way to use your wealth than for the kingdom of God, folks. There's no better way. And that's what she's doing. So they showed their devotion by giving. By giving out of their private monies. Secondly, they showed their devotion by enduring. By enduring hardships. It wasn't all fun and games, I don't think, to follow Jesus around. These disciples are walking from one place to another. And usually a, a city or a village is going to be 10, 15, 20 miles from the last one. Let's say you have to walk to another village that's 20 miles. That's going to take you all day. You ever walk all day long? You're tired at the end of that day. The roads are dusty. It's hot in the Middle East. And when they get there, their day's not done. They need to make sure that this group is provided for, so they're down, going down to the market, buying the food, bringing it back, cooking the meal. They're, they're busy serving Christ. So there's hardship connected to these women's service of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was 110 miles from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, and these women made that trip. That's where they ended up. But again, I think their service was glad service, not grudging service. In addition, there's the hardship of enduring scorn and slander. I mean, think about the culture of that day, and then think about these women traveling around with Jesus and his disciples everywhere they go. I'm sure that the rumors were flying and gossip is spreading. Think about the gossip in Herod's court. For a wealthy woman like Joanna to leave and start following Jesus around would, might be like Bill Gates' daughter deciding that she's going to leave home in her elite social circle of millionaires and billionaires, and she's going to go to Guatemala and join this ragtag, poor group of traveling evangelists. 
I mean, what are the people going to say that know Bill Gates when they hear about what his daughter's done? I mean, you can, the, the, the stories are flying and people are talking, but they're willing to endure that scorn. But Joanna's values have completely changed at this point. She doesn't care. What she cares about is being with Jesus because he's the one that had transformed her life. But then there is also the devotion that they show Jesus simply by following him. See, they followed him all the way to Jerusalem. And when the disciples forsook him and fled when Jesus was arrested, they didn't. They stood by him. We're told that only Peter and John made it to the high priest's home. And Peter was following at a distance. And when Jesus was crucified, only John was there. All the other ones were gone at that point. We're also told that when Jesus' body was buried, no disciples were around at that time. No male disciples. They were gone. They were in hiding for fear of the Jews. Now contrast that with the women. I'm going to read some scripture to you. This is all from later passages. But Luke 23, 49, and then 55 and 56. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Now this is describing the cross. Notice that phrase. The women who had come with him out of Galilee. Who's that? It's the same group of women we're talking about. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. There's also Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. She's in there too, although she's not named in Luke 8. So these women and the other women that were following him, they are there at the cross. And it says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. So they were there at the cross, and they were there when Jesus was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Then Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, so this would be Saturday evening, sundown, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So Saturday night after sundown, they went to the market to buy spices to anoint his body. And then they went to bed and got up extremely early before the sun had even risen. And they brought those spices. And those spices weighed 75, 80 pounds. So imagine women carrying those heavy spices early in the morning before the sun had even risen. And they're carrying the spices to the tomb. Folks, we have a hard enough time just getting up and making it here by 10 o'clock. These women are up before the day of break. <laughs> I said that wrong. Break of day. <laughs> Carrying this heavy load with them to the tomb. And it wasn't women who betrayed Jesus. It wasn't a woman who denied Jesus three times. It wasn't women who forsook him and fled. But it was women who stood by him at the cross. It was women who were there when his body was laid in the tomb. It was women who came early in the morning when the disciples were at home to anoint his body for burial. And it was women whom Jesus appeared to for the very first time. First of all, the angels announced that he had risen. And then Jesus himself appeared to Mary Magdalene before he appeared to anybody else. Now let's draw out some application from all of this this morning. Some lessons. And I just want to bring out two of them. First of all, Jesus treated women with dignity and respect. Much greater dignity and much greater respect than the male population of that world did. 
It was customary in the first century that women could not give their testimony in a court of law. It wasn't allowed. Women didn't speak at political functions. Rabbis did not teach women. They were, they, you just, that just wasn't done in the first century. In the first chapters of the book of Genesis, we read that male and female were created in the image of God, and both of them were given dominion to rule over the earth. They're co-equal image bearers in God's sight. And Jesus recognized their dignity, and he offered them respect. Jesus ministered to them. He healed them. He cast demons out of them. He appeared to them after he had risen from the dead. He made them witnesses of his resurrection. And so the way Jesus treated women was radical compared to the way they were treated by others in that particular day, which just simply teaches me and you, hopefully, that we ought to do the same. Women are to be treated with dignity and respect because they are equal in the sight of God. All mankind, men and women, are equal in in the sight of the Lord. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now in context, Paul is talking about the benefits of salvation. And he's saying that when it comes to the benefits of salvation, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. All of us are on the same equal footing before God. We are debtors to God's grace. None of us is any closer to God because we're a man or because we're a Jew or because we're a free man. doesn't matter. We're all equal in the sight of God on an equal footing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter's talking to husbands, and he says, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So honor her. How do you do that, husbands? You honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. In other words, there's complete equality when it comes to our status before God in terms of being His children. A son or a daughter of God, we're on the same level playing field. So, since Jesus treated women with dignity and respect, that ought to be the way that we treat women, right? We ought to follow in His footsteps. Men should never have a superior attitude like they're somehow better than a woman. Sometimes that can happen. But if we do that, that's contrary to the example of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus did not call women to the same roles as men. Now, these are two twin truths or corollary truths. Number one, he treated women with dignity and respect. But on the other hand, he did not call women to the same roles as he called men to. Okay, think about this for just a minute. He chose 12 apostles. How many were women? None. Zero. Now, does that mean he couldn't have done that? He had these women that were following him around from place to place. If he wanted to be politically correct, he could have chose six men and six women to give no discrimination, but he didn't do that. He chose 12 men. And the women that followed him around, we don't read of them preaching and teaching and taking authoritative positions. What we do read about them doing is 
contributing to their means out of their or their support out of their private means. It was sort of a background supportive role of serving wherever they needed were needed at that particular time. So the roles seemed to be different between the men that he called and the women that were his disciples and followed him. And that really dovetails well with the rest of the New Testament. What do we read about women in the New Testament? Let's think about that. Romans 16 speaks about Phoebe. She was a servant of the church at Centria. Now the word servant there in the Greek is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon, and scholars are divided. That might be saying she was a deacon of the church at Centria, or it simply might mean that she was a servant, a humble servant of the church with no official status. We don't know. But we, what we do know is she was recognized in a public way as a servant of the church. We also are introduced to a woman named Priscilla, Aquila was her husband, and at one point, together, they took aside this very powerful preacher named Apollos because he was familiar only with the ministry of John the Baptist. They took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. They, they taught him about Jesus and what he had come to do. Now, notice that Priscilla is not rebuking Apollos publicly, she, together with her husband, are taking him aside privately and trying to help him explain the way of God more accurately, which is an appropriate role for a woman to do with her husband, to help someone along if they're deficient in their understanding. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read about how women prayed and prophesied in the early church. Now, we're told there that they weren't to do it unless they had their hair covered, but that's a subject for a whole other sermon, and we don't want to get into that. But we do know that they prayed and prophesied, which is significant. They vocally participated in the meetings of the church. We're also told through the rest of the one another scriptures that they are called to encourage one another, pray for one another, exhort one another, show hospitality to one another, they were to be those that were givers, uh, involved in practical service, showing mercy, and exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Women were to do all of those things. You didn't just have the men that were given gifts of the Spirit. The whole body is given gifts, and they were called to use those gifts for the edification of the whole body. But to balance all of that, you do have two passages in the New Testament which limit what a woman is to do within the body of Christ. One is First Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Well, he's got these up for you. And then 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. And this is where the whole debate rages, those two passages of Scripture, because they seem to put a limitation upon women. The first one, a woman is to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So there we have the Apostle Paul's pretty clear. I mean, there's nothing really hard to understand about that. It's pretty clear. What do we do with it? Well, we live in a day in which our culture greatly esteems the idea of non-discrimination and everyone has the same rights. And so the church has gone along with that to a great degree, and we find ourselves pulling over to the side which says that, okay, well, I guess women ought to be able to do everything a man can do in the church. 
Well, at least in the church of Ephesus in the first century, when Paul had anything to do with it, women didn't do that. Could we agree with that? At least that much. Now, here's where the difficulty comes in. Scholars say, well, the reason why a woman was not to teach or exercise authority over a man is because the men were the ones who were educated and the women weren't. So women could easily get into false doctrine if they were to try to teach men in that day. Things have changed today. Women are educated just as much as men are, and so women ought to be allowed the prerogative of teaching and exercising authority over men today. That's one view. The other view is that women were involved in heresy in Ephesus. And they say that Paul was simply putting a moratorium upon women teaching in Ephesus in that particular day and age, not for women of all time in every situation. In other words, this is to be localized. It's not a universal prohibition. Okay, do you see the arguments? Now, if you keep reading, <laughs> we stopped at verse... 12. If you keep reading, Paul gives his reasons for what he's just said. And he never says, well, it's because women are uneducated. He doesn't say it's because women are involved in heresy there in Ephesus. Do you know what his reasons are? He goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he says, the man was created first and then the woman. And man was not the one who fell into transgression and was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. Those are his two arguments, his two reasons for why he gives these verses. The reasons he gives has nothing to do with a localized culture of a particular day. Their creation order, right? They would apply to all men and women of all time and every situation. So my conviction is that we need to take this as a standing rule for all time and every situation. This applies today, it applies in 2014, it applies in Sacramento, just like it applies in Israel, or Timbuktu, or Guatemala, or wherever you happen to live in the world. This would be God's word on the role of women within the body of Christ. Now, the other one is even harder to interpret than the first one. And I even hesitate to even mention it, because <laughs> probably in our Q&A time, people are going to want to understand this verse, and it's very difficult. It says, women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And it even goes on from there. And I remember as a very young Christian reading that, thinking, what in the world does that mean? And I asked people, what does that verse mean? And they told me <laughs> that the man sat on one side and the women sat on the other side of... Actually, people met in homes back then, so you get your living room divided into two sides... And the women were shouting out to their husbands, hey, what is that preacher talking about over there? I don't understand. And it was disrupting the service. And it never really seemed to be a good explanation to me of what this verse is talking about. There are folks that say this verse means that a woman should not utter a syllable when the church is gathered. She is to be mute, completely silent. That's one view. The view that I tend to think is better, but I am open to correction on this because it's a difficult passage. It's the view that D.A. Carson holds. It's the view that looks at this in its context. And directly preceding these verses, Paul is talking about judging prophecy. He's saying that when a prophet speaks, the rest are to pass judgment. But women are to keep silent in the churches, meaning that women are not to take the authoritative role of judging another man's prophecy within the body of Christ. He says they're, they're not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves. 
God's role for women is not to take authoritative positions, but to take a submissive position. According to this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and many others that we could quote. So that's, that's where I'm leaning on that particular verse. I, I wouldn't come down 100% dogmatically on it, but that's probably the best explanation I've heard, and I've read quite a bit on it. But we do have these two limiting passages in the Bible. There's no reason to think that either one were localized or confined only to the first century. They seem to be the Apostle Paul's ongoing instruction to churches not only in his day, but all days. And so what do we find here? We find that women absolutely equal in their personhood. They're to be treated with dignity and respect, but that God hasn't called them to the same function that he's called men. That's all it is, is to it. It's just like the Trinity. Jesus doesn't have the same function as God the Father. God the Father didn't come down from heaven and die for our sins. That was Jesus' role. But is Jesus inferior to the Father? Absolutely not. That's the same way that men and women work within the body of Christ. We're equal, yet there are different roles that God has assigned to each. So, as we conclude, let me just exhort you by looking at these three women again. They're good examples for us. We ought to serve Jesus Christ with all of our might. We ought to serve Him in our giving, in the use of our finances. We ought to serve Him in enduring hardship for His sake, being willing to accept scorn and ridicule and hardship to follow Jesus. And we ought to show our devotion by following Him to the very end, the way these women did. And not to forsake Him at any point and flee, but to be a, a diligent follower of Jesus Christ. So folks, let's serve Jesus Christ with all of our heart. Amen? And Lord, we do ask You to seal this word to us, that we would follow in the footsteps of these holy women of old, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Susanna. Lord, thank you for giving us their names and their examples. And Lord, maybe we cannot claim to have been delivered from demons or healed from an incurable disease. But Lord, if we're saved, we have the same situation. You have come into a hopeless, helpless life, and you have delivered us and set us free. And so I pray, Lord, that out of a heart of love and gratitude and thankfulness, we would set about to serve Jesus in whatever way we can, even if it's in a very obscure way that not many people ever know about. Lord, we thank you that you're looking down from heaven and you're taking note and you're writing everything down in your book of remembrance and all things will become open and laid bare and clear one day. So Lord, help us to serve you with no other motive than just because we love you. And we want to do something to show it. In Jesus' holy name, amen.